Well, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And we are glad to be together uh, in worship this morning. If you are visiting with us, we want to give you a very special welcome and uh, hope that we can uh, get to know you a little bit uh, after our service during our coffee time. And uh, we also would invite you to uh, connect with us in another way. One of the things we do as a church is have uh, our Redeemer open houses, uh, and that's a way for you to just have a meal uh, over at the Champs home. This is the next one's coming up on October. Um, it's October already. I just said that. Wow. Not yet. It's coming soon. Uh, October 8th, and uh, you can sign up for that. Uh, the link is in the bulletin on our website, and uh, we'd love to have you be a part of that meal and just get to know a few other people uh, in the church also. Uh, you can also text the word welcome to that number that's on the screen or fill out the uh, uh, paper connect card that's in front of you. It just helps us to know that you were there, kind of puts you on our radar so that we can reach out and get to know you a little bit better also. Uh, there's uh, coming up after our worship services, our Sunday school hour, and uh, uh, classes for all ages. Uh, but it's also, we have our inquirers class. So for anyone who has uh, been here for a little while, maybe you have been prayerfully considering being a member of Redeemer and you'd like to learn more about that, the inquirers class is the way to do it. So you can just go to Pastor Jeff's office, which is just right down the hall <clears throat> and the uh, first door on your right. And uh, you can uh, have that time learning a little bit more about membership at Redeemer. Lots of other um, things in the bulletin for you to check out for the activities going on at Redeemer. And if you're not in a Bible study or in a life group, we'd love to help you do that. Uh, just read that over, and uh, we'd love to help you out. So let's take this point now and uh, prepare our hearts as we come before our God. We've been given the incredible opportunity and privilege this morning to learn from our God, that he calls us uh, to worship him uh, in our Psalm uh, 43 this morning, and the psalmist demonstrates for us what a teachable spirit looks like, and that we might emulate that as well. From uh, Psalm 143, beginning in verse 10, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. Well, we have the opportunity to offer up a prayer and song as we ask the Lord, uh, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Please stand as we sing together.
gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for the incredible gift of our blessed Lord Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life that we failed to live, the one who died the death we deserve, the one who rose again from the dead that we might have hope as we put our faith and trust in him alone. And Lord, as you have marked us as your people, as you have set us apart as those called to be holy as you are holy, Lord, we thank you that your spirit is at work in our hearts this morning. And we ask that throughout every portion of this service, Lord, that you would be ministering to our hearts, drawing us more to yourself and enabling us to reflect your glory. That you would give our hearts the confidence and our souls the rest in knowing that Jesus is Lord. Amen. seated. As we think about the lordship of Jesus Christ and the way that he demonstrates that in our lives by providing to us his word, right? he gave uh, to us the law of God for a very particular purpose, one to convict our hearts of the ways that we fall short of his glory, seeing our need for a savior. He also is helping us to recognize what it means to reflect the character 
of God. And so he is molding and shaping us more and more in the image of Christ. And one of the ways that we know that is we are bringing our sins to him, confessing the ways that we fall short. And so uh, in this Ten Commandments series, we are in the fifth commandment, and we are looking at the uh, requirements that children have to their parents. And as we know that that is, is broader uh, to recognize all those who are under authority. Are, are, there's ways that we fall short, and the Lord has called us to uh, repent of those things. And so to guide our minds uh, in that preparation, I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 6, where we see the uh, fifth commandment uh, uh, in the New Testament and the way that it is applied uh, very specifically. Uh, and so uh, hear God's word, and then we'll recite together uh, answering the larger catechism. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Let us answer this question together. What are the sins of inferiors against their superiors? The sins of inferiors against their superiors are... All neglect of the duties required toward them, envying at, contempt of, and rebellion against their persons and places, in their lawful counsels, commands, and corrections, cursing, mocking, and all such refractory and scandalous carriage as provides a shame and dishonor to them and their government." Obviously, some of the older English uh, in that particular one, but as we uh, demonstrate in our own lives uh, a memory, not just of our childhood, but even now, the ways that we uh, resist the different authorities that are over us. And uh, so we need to come and ask the Lord's uh, forgiveness for the ways that we do that. Let us go to him in silent prayer. Father, we, we are grateful that you know our hearts. We are grateful that though we fall short in the duties required as we saw last week, we also fall short in the sins forbidden. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your care as our Heavenly Father. We also thank you for your promise in this command. Lord, by your grace, as we seek to honor you above all things, as we honor the authorities in our lives, that you will bless us with our lives being long in the land that you have given to us here. We ask you to forgive us for the ways that we even if it's in our own hearts have mocked those that are above us in authority but also the ways that we have acted out in word and in deed and that you would bring resolution to whatever divisions there are and that your grace would attend these things so that you are glorified and we bear a testimony that points to the greatness of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.
The Lord gives to us this assurance of pardon from Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Well, as we rejoice in that glorious promise of forgiveness, we know that it also is demonstrated to us in a sign of baptism. So Pastor Jeff is going to come now to lead us in that. just a moment, I'm going to ask the Timmers to come up and take vows. And then as a congregation, we will also take a vow of commitment to the Timmers and the raising of little Oliver. Before they come up, I want to give you an explanation of why we um, perform baptisms, infant baptisms specifically in this church. Uh, maybe you're a visitor here this morning and infant baptism is not part of the church tradition you belong to, or maybe you're not part of a church at all. And what you observe this morning, you might think, well, this is sort of the routine that people go through. I want to suggest to you it's more than a routine. It's rooted in the very character of God and his relationship with human beings as a whole. Now, that is a pretty grand claim to make, that baptism is really rooted in the way that God interacts with human beings as a whole. The reason I make that claim is because of what Genesis 17 says. In the baptismal form that we have in our little book that is given to us by our denomination, Genesis chapter 17, verse 7 plays an incredibly prominent part. It says in verse 7, this is God speaking to Abram, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now, I've got to tell you something that may seem a little strange, but just bear with me. I can remember when my wife agreed to go on a first date with me. The reason I can remember that is because I remember thinking to myself, why in the world would she do that? It seemed like I was aiming way too high, and the fact that she agreed was sort of almost intimidating to me. In the relationship in which God establishes with his people in the Bible, there are unequals involved. Just a moment ago, we talked about superiors and inferiors. That's older language from our tradition that doesn't refer to the character, the, the person themselves, but rather to their position in life. There are people who have more responsibility and they have more authority and those who have less responsibility and less authority. In the relationship that God has established with us, that is his people in history, it is a relationship of the greatest superior to great inferiors. It requires a God who is great and holy, who made everything in the universe to come to us People who not only are far less powerful and great, we're limited, we're finite, but also are sinners. God is morally perfect. We are morally imperfect. 
We just confessed that a moment ago. Always love the commandment about the uh, honoring your father and mother and all authorities over you. That is so close to my heart because it's so hard for me to do. Especially when I'm driving the road and I can't remember why the speed limit is so limited. God understands as human beings, we would never reach out to him in our sinful condition. We would never say to God, hey God, I've come to the conclusion that I need you. No, in history, it is God who initiates a relationship with us individually and corporately. And in Genesis 17, we have that initiation of a relationship with us as his people in what is called a covenant. A covenant is simply an arrangement of a relationship. You have a covenant if you're married. You even have a covenant if you have a mortgage at the bank. You have an arrangement of a relationship. In that arrangement, there are promises made and responsibilities as well as obligations and promises that are made to fulfill our parts of the covenant. God is the superior, he initiates a relationship, we are an inferior, and we respond to his initiation. Now I say all of that to simply point out this about baptism, specifically infant baptism. Whether or not we believe that infants are to be baptized is really rooted in whether or not we believe that it is God who must initiate and must be foremost in our relationship with him. Or to make it very specific, in baptism, what matters most? The promises that Cameron and Lauren are going to take, the promises that we take as a congregation, or for an adult, the promise that that adult makes toward God, is that primary? Is that the thing that matters most? Or is it the promise of God that he makes to us to be a God to us and our children? Is this sacrament primarily about what we say to our God or what God says about us? I'm going solidly with the second. Because if I can just be very clear with you, just think back over the last week. How did you do with the promises that you made? I think I promised my wife three times I was going to order a book for a couple that we know who are recently married. They're not in this congregation If you're in this congregation recently married, your book is not coming. (laughs) I couldn't even keep that promise very well. If we are hoping that little Oliver grows up to be a strong Christian man because his parents are so faithful, they're wonderful people, but they're flawed. That's not a lot of hope there. If the hope is that little Oliver grows up to be a strong man of God because we're a great congregation who keep every promise we make, I have great news for you. We're in deep trouble. Because this is a wonderful congregation with wonderful people, but we also fail in our promises. But if this sacrament is about a promise that God makes, and he makes it in this regard, first of all, to set Oliver apart as holy to him, we don't mean that he's automatically saved by this baptism. What we mean is that he is set aside and distinguished from all other children who are not within the covenant. And God gives Oliver great advantages. He's given them a, uh, uh, him a mom and dad that love him greatly. 
that have already prayed for him, they prayed for him before he was even born. Grandparents and extended family who also are praying for him, loving him, encouraging him. He's given Oliver a church family. And we're going to commit in just a moment to pray for, encourage, teach Sunday school class. Help him grow up. And most of all, God has promised Oliver that he will give them the advantage of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oliver's wholly set apart to the Lord. And because he is, when that water is placed on little Oliver's head, what we say is that God is giving him a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. That is, he really and truly belongs to the people that God spoke to in Genesis chapter 17. Now not marked by a bloody sign but marked with a sign of cleansing and remaking of renewal. That little Oliver, as cute as he is, and oh my word, is he a beautiful child. The Lord can in his heart already renew his heart, change his heart, cause him to grow up before him as first a child, then a young man, and then an adult who embraces Jesus Christ fully and truly. When you watch this sacrament, think to yourself, God is able to change this young man's heart. He can do it. I also want you to think as this sacrament is performed of your own position before God. I'm called by our forum to ask you to improve your baptism. What ancient language that is meant to communicate this you also are to reflect as those who have been baptized and are part of the church. Am I following after God in obedience? This God who has spoken to me in Genesis 17 powerfully and clearly initiated this relationship with me. Am I responding to him in faithfulness? I'm going to ask Cam and Lauren to come up here in front because I have some questions for them. These are questions we went through earlier, but these are questions that you make not only before these people, but especially before God himself. There are four of them. I'm going to ask you one at a time. And do you acknowledge that although your child is conceived and born in sin and therefore is subject to condemnation, he is holy in Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace and as a child of the covenant is to be baptized? Second, do you promise to teach diligently to Oliver the principles of our holy Christian faith as revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and summarized in the confession of faith and catechisms of this church? And third, do you promise to pray regularly with and for Oliver and to set an example of piety and godliness before him? And finally, do you promise to endeavor by all the means that God has appointed to bring Oliver up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, encouraging him to appropriate for himself the blessings and to fulfill the obligations of the covenant. Oh, praise the Lord. Let me pray for you. Father, in just a moment, the water of baptism is going to be placed on the head of little Oliver. And Lord, the water that we use is ordinary water. The water itself does not cleanse Oliver's heart. It is the blood of Jesus Christ applied by his spirit that remakes our hearts. 
But this water is still significant and important. It is commanded to us by Christ that we would baptize in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. The baptism is meant to teach us and to affirm to us that the promises made by Jesus to us and to our children are true and real. And we pray in the years that come as Oliver is told about this moment and as he grows up learning about Jesus Christ that he would also come to embrace with his heart that Jesus Christ is his Savior and his Lord. Give Cameron and Lauren the strength and endurance and the courage and the godliness to pray with him, to lead him, and to shepherd him into the ways of the kingdom of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oliver Edward Timmer, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I have a certificate here of his baptism to memorialize this day, and then I would also ask the congregation to stand if you would. This is the promise that you make to the Timmers and especially to little Oliver. I'm going to read this question, and if you affirm it to the end, say, we do. As Oliver is baptized into Christ and becomes a member of his visible church, the whole congregation is obligated to love him and to receive him as a member of the body of Christ. For we were all baptized into one spirit, by one spirit, into one body, and therefore are members of one another. Christ claims this little child as his own and calls you to receive him in love and commitment. Therefore, you ought to commit yourselves before God to assist this family in raising him in the fear and admonition of the Lord by godly example, by prayer and encouragement in our most precious faith. If you agree to do so, please say, we do. Praise the Lord. Congratulations. Be seated. You may all be seated. As we reflect on this baptism, I'd ask you to join with me in singing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I just ask you to sit down. I'm going to ask you to stand up again.
Let us go to our God in prayer with a prayer of thanksgiving. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning and your steadfast witness in the changing of the seasons. We are thankful to be gathered in this house of worship to hear your word proclaimed and sing praises to your holy name. Please be with your servant as he brings your message to us. May our minds and hearts be open that your word may be planted in fertile soil and bear much fruit. Please bless this offering we are about to take. Bless the gift and giver, and may it be used to further your kingdom. In Jesus' most holy name we pray. Amen.
I finished preaching a series of sermons last week on the importance of the church. A number of people have asked me, I don't feel like I really do as much as I would like in caring for the other members of the church. Uh, There are a lot of options for how you can express that care, but here's one of them. Every week we send out a prayer update with people who are requesting prayer. If you're not on that list, please um, add your name to it and then make prayer for these folks an important part of your weekly routine. I just want to give one update for those of you who are not on that prayer list. We support Michael, Nina, and Max Schaffsma. Uh, in Europe, specifically, they're asking us to pray for Morocco this morning. If you don't know, better than a week ago, a, a, uh, an earthquake hit the mountains of Morocco near Marrakech, I think is how it is said, and about 3,000 people died. And Michael and Anita specifically are being asked to help in the relief efforts there in Morocco. So we're going to pray for the Shasmas. Uh, and the work that they're doing there in Morocco. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we have witnessed your covenant promises to us this morning. You are God who keeps your promises. I'm reminded of what Joshua told the people of Israel at the end of his book. He told them that they could trust that God would always be faithful to them because not one promise that he had ever made to them had fallen away. It had failed to come to pass. We are people who often fail to keep our word. Things slip our minds. We then reconsider maybe at another point about things we have promised and we just don't do them. Sometimes we're even mean in the things that we fail to do. Lord, at the very depth of our hearts, there is a struggle that goes on. Sometimes the good wins, sometimes the bad wins out. And if our relationship with you and the things that we're praying for was dependent on our inherent goodness, Lord, we would have many reasons to wonder whether you would hear us. But we do not come in our own righteousness this morning. We come in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our eternal advocate, the one who stands before your throne pleading our cause this morning. In fact, even more than that, the book of Hebrews says in worship, we are drawn up into the heavenly places. Not to Mount Sinai where there was shaking of the mountain and there was thunder and lightning and there was smoke, but we are brought before the very throne of God himself, worshiping there with those who have preceded us, with the angels and those in glory, singing holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God. We pray that that glory would be seen in the lives of those who are on our prayer list. We pray for Carolyn Como. Again, we ask that you would heal her. Father, we ask that you would also help her in a transition as she intends to move to Florida. Lord, may her physical ailments not keep that from happening. We miss her, Lord, and we pray that you would provide for her and care for her as she transitions from here to there. We also pray for Dan Corhorn. We are very grateful he was able to complete his fourth chemo treatment. And we ask that when later the tests are done to see how his tumor is doing, that these chemo treatments would be effective. We also pray for his wife, for his daughters, and for Jim and Mary as they also walk this difficult road with him. Lord, heal him. We also pray for Zach Francois and other math workers, especially as we think together about Haiti this morning. 
The specific thing they're asking us to pray for is that the people of Haiti could have clean water to drink. That's an amazing thought to us when we simply turn on the tap and the water is there. But in countries where there is so much violence and oppression, even having clean water is something that is not a given. And we pray for the people of Haiti that you would provide for them in so many ways. We especially pray for the flourishing of the light of the gospel in such a dark place. We pray for Zach as he considers the best way for you to use his abilities. Father, we ask if it is your will that eventually he would be able to return to Haiti and to care for the people who are there. We also pray this morning, along with the body of Christ across the world, for Michael and Nina Shafsma as they seek to minister to the people of Morocco. Lord, we grieve with those who have lost lives. Over 3,000 lives were lost. Maybe it is even grievous to us that very little has been reported about this in our country. To imagine that so many could lose their lives and yet we barely know about it may speak volumes about the way that we view ourselves. We pray that you would give great help to Max and to Nina as they seek to bring relief supplies to the people who are there. Give them safety. We pray that you would keep the rains and any further um, natural disasters from occurring. Lord, that here also the gospel witness of the Shaftsmas as they bring relief in the name of Jesus Christ would be a powerful witness to those who receive that help and to the culture of Morocco as a whole. And then, Lord, we also pray this morning for the Timmers. As little Oliver was baptized, Lord, we bring them before you as we do others who have children, whose children have been born recently. And then we also pray for the list, the growing list of those who are expecting children in the near future. Holy Father, the process of raising children is often a series of guesses and recalibrations and trying again. And we pray for the Timmers that you would give them great godliness by your spirit. That they would give an example of that godliness to to little Oliver. And that their family and this church as a whole would be an encouragement to them. We pray that as Oliver grows, that his love for you would grow as well. That he would be one who, as he grows up, would proclaim that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. That is a desire for each one of our children, Lord. That is a desire for ourselves as well as adults and for our body and really for our community as whole. We want Jesus Christ to be proclaimed. We want disciples to be made and then conformed to the image of Christ. And we pray that in this great ambitious task that you've given to the church, that you would be pleased in your kindness and your grace to us to give us a role in that work. We pray especially now as we come to your word. Father, the passage we have in front of us is a lengthy passage full of some difficult things to understand. And so we pray especially this morning that your spirit would make it clear to us what your word says and what you intend for us to understand. Father, you are a God, not of confusion, not of error, but a God of clarity. That God desires that the truth would be known. And we pray in this place this morning, that's exactly what would happen. We bring these things before you in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. We are turning this morning to John chapter 7, verses 14 through 44. It is a longer passage than what I ordinarily preach from. But it seems as though this part fits very nicely together. 
Um, it's not really helped by the chapter divisions in our Bibles, but that's okay. As you might know, those divisions were added later on, long after the Bible was given to us. And we are in a portion of the Gospel of John that records Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem, where people are wondering, who really is this Jesus? If you have not been here for previous weeks, and by which I mean quite a number of weeks in the past, or you don't remember this series of sermons on John, I want to reintroduce them to you by saying the burden of the gospel of John is to give you reason to believe in Jesus. He wants to encourage you with everything that was in Jesus' life, ministry, teaching, that Jesus alone is Savior, and not only is he Savior, but he is more than capable of bearing the weight of your trust. This is not a record of mere history. This is meant to be a persuasive document to lead you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And as much as I'm able this morning, I want to preach the word to you with that spirit as well to persuade you to believe in Jesus Christ. Let's begin at verse 14 of John chapter 7. About the middle of the feast, that is the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given to you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You seek me and will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where is this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? 
What does he mean by saying you will seek me and not find me? And where I am you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. This is as far as we are going to read in God's word. It is a lengthy passage. You might wonder this morning, in fact, ask in your own mind, Pastor, why preaching so much? It is because, I believe, that this section of Scripture really holds together in presenting one fundamental truth to us. And often I try at the beginning of my sermon to give you kind of a catchy intro. This morning, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to tell you what this long section is about. It's simply this. That Jesus knows you have a, a, that, <laughs> I was all wound up to give it to you. Let me try again. Jesus knows that you have objections about his appeal. That's what this section is about. He knows you have objections about his appeal. What I'm going to do this morning is give you the two main objections that are found in this passage. And then I want to also explain to you Jesus's response to these two objections. I want to bury our thinking for just a moment at the section in time in Jesus' ministry where this is occurring. It will not make sense if you don't know a bit of the context. As I said at the beginning, before I read this passage, Jesus is at the Feast of the Tabernacles. If you remember that feast, it was the feast that remembered that the Israelites had wandered around in the desert before they went into the Promised Land And God had provided for them through all those years of wandering. Tabernacles is just a way that we might say tent. They lived in tents for years while waiting. And God provided for them through all of those years. And this was one of the great festivals of the Israelites. Every male Israelite was required to go to the temple for this festival. And before the part that we read, if you can remember all the way back to when we looked at the first number of verses in this chapter, Jesus' disciples, in fact, his own family encourages him to go up to the temple for the Feast of Tabernacles. His family says it in jest. They say, why don't you go up to the Feast of Tabernacles and show everyone you're finally here, the Messiah has arrived. Why don't you go ahead and do it? And then we read that's not what Jesus did. In fact, he didn't go up at the beginning. It's not until our section here in verse 14, in the middle of the festival, a festival that lasted seven days. It's not until the middle of the festival that Jesus begins to speak. 
And now the crowds, both the religious authorities as well as your average Jewish male as well as families that came to the temple for this festival begin to listen to Jesus. Before it's been limited, there have been crowds here and there. People have made their judgments. This is Jesus in his grand entrance. This is his first presentation to the Israelite nation as a whole. And as the people listen to his teaching... They have two central objections to Jesus being the Messiah. The first objection comes in verses 14 through 24. I think it can summarize that by looking at the center of that teaching in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from me or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Here's the first hesitation the Jews had about Jesus, and that is, as we read in another gospel, Jesus as Jesus spoke as one who had authority, not as the other religious leaders spoke. You'll notice in this section, that's at the center of their objection about Jesus. They say, how could you be speaking, Jesus? You're not someone who has been in the rabbinic schools that we teach in. How is it possible for you to teach as you do? For the rabbis of the day, they would spend years and years and years learning the tradition of the interpretation of the law. And they felt most comfortable in repeating what those notable figures who had come before them had said about the various laws. They found their comfort not in speaking from the law of God directly as though they could interpret it directly. They found comfort in interpreting it through the lens of many of those who preceded them. And now comes Jesus and he is speaking to them truth that falls outside of what their rabbis would have said. He's inherently challenging the system of interpretation that existed at the time. Oh, more than that, he appears to these Jews to be speaking on his own authority. So the question that they raise for him is this, on whose authority do you speak? What right do you have to teach the law of God to us as you are And they attach it to this notion of Jesus not only speaking on his own authority, but seeking his own glory. If I can just put it in very crass terms, here is an itinerant preacher who shows up speaking about the word of God, not respecting those who came before him, because in their minds he is trying to gather a following. This is the kind of preacher who's not interested And simply speaking the truth in their minds, he is interested in pressing them, in trying to convince them to follow him. It's very interesting the way that Jesus responds to this objection. But before I tell you how he responds, I simply want to ask you a simple question. As much as I have been telling you this is the way the Jewish authorities and people responding to Jesus, let me ask you if there's any hint of this objection in your own mind. Is it possible that when you consider Jesus, there's a part of you that also wonders whether Jesus is another religious persuader meant to draw attention to himself? 
Or maybe if that seems too harsh, I can expand the question. Does it appear as though the work that God is doing in his world through Jesus Christ and his spirit is not a good work. In fact, it is really about drawing attention for the sake of attention gathering. Maybe that sounds a little bit obscure. Let me try it this way. Every once in a while, I go to a website called Ministry Watch. I hope that you're not familiar with it. (laughs) If you are, you'll know it's a website in which the author of the website, the producer of the website, records the way in which the church is failing. He'll go from the Southern Baptists to the United Methodists to the Presbyterians to the Roman Catholics. He is indiscriminate in who he criticizes. But over and over and over, he raises cases of youth pastors being inappropriate, of senior pastors embezzling money, of churches not releasing particular congregations who want to leave their fellowship because the denomination as a whole has gone away from the Scriptures. He records story after story after story about how the church is less than it ought to be. Maybe when you look at Jesus, you have a similar suspicion, that's true about him, that Jesus is simply another attention-gathering fraud, that there's nothing inherently good or right about Jesus, he's simply a competitor for your attention. And if Jesus can do more, he can do what you ask, then you'd be interested. But until then, you look at suspicion with Jesus. Just as much suspicion as the person who walks up to the door and says to you, I'd like to sell you new siding or a roof for your house. He's simply somebody shilling shilling an opportunity for you to support and to give yourself to a fraud. It's very interesting in this first objection how Jesus responds. If you look at verse 20 and following, where Jesus says, you're trying to kill me, Jesus responds to the objection about Jesus simply being another attention-seeking fraud by pointing them to a miracle he did previously in chapter 5. If you go back in your Bibles, chapter 5, verses 1 and following, you'd find the story of a man who was lame for 38 years, and Jesus healed him. As wonderful as that is, what really bubbles to the surface in that story is not the wonder of the healing, it's that Jesus performed it on the Sabbath. And from that point onward, the religious leaders considered Jesus to be less than the Messiah because he would violate the Sabbath. This is an attention to the law that really ignores its purpose. And Jesus, when responding to them about their suspicion that he's an attention-seeking fraud, points them to the miracle and then says, Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry when I made a whole man whole? Now please stick with me, because this is a little complicated. It's a little hard to understand. What Jesus is saying about the miracle it performed in John chapter 5 is that the miracle was meant to not violate the law of Moses. It was meant to fulfill it. 
According to Jewish tradition, on the eighth day, a Jewish boy was to be circumcised. Didn't matter if it was a Sabbath or not. Because the law of circumcision was more significant. Why was it more significant? Because in the Old Testament, circumcision was meant to be a sign of the cleansing and purification of that child. And that cleansing and purification was the significant statement about that child belonging to the covenant community of God. And Jesus said, if you believe that about circumcision, that the statement about cleansing, purification, being made whole could be done on the Sabbath, how about when I healed a man who had been lame for 38 years and made him completely whole? What Jesus is saying to the Old Testament Israelites here in John chapter 7 is that they missed the point of the law. The commandment of Moses was not simply something to be followed. Listen to this. He is saying the law of Moses was meant to point to a deeper reality. First of all, the intention of God to make pure and clean those who belong to him. A similar kind of sign that was given to Oliver this morning. We say the sign didn't make him holy in his heart. The sign didn't make him justified with God. The sign pointed to something, and that is the work of Jesus Christ. Circumcision, Jesus is arguing in this passage, does exactly the same thing. So that when Jesus arrived on earth and he healed, he made a man whole. He was turning back the effect of sin dramatically in the way that the law was intended to point to in every respect. Jesus is saying it, saying it very clearly. He did not violate the Old Testament law. He fulfilled it. Now you might wonder, in this context, how does that answer the objection? The objection these folks have raised is that Jesus is an attention-seeking fraud. The answer Jesus gives them is, I fulfill the Old Testament law. You might wonder, how does that answer their objection? What does that do? To answer that, I want to go back to verse 17. In verse 17 it says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Jesus' explanation of his miracle and how he fulfills the Old Testament law is to demonstrate... Something about authority. The Israelites interpreted the Old Testament law based on the authorities that came before them. Jesus says, I have come to you with the authority of God himself. And if you want to see a demonstration of that authority, look at the miracle I performed. And see how that miracle points to me as a fulfillment of God's intention to make all things right through the Messiah. Jesus' answer to their objection that he is simply seeking attention is to say, I have come from a God who has pointed to me in the law over and over and over again. 
I'm not someone new. I just didn't throw up, show up. I'm not speaking my own authority. I'm speaking from the authority of the one who enables me to perform miracles like this through whom I fulfill what God always intended. I'm not a Johnny come lately who all of a sudden does these miracles to amaze and astound you. I do these things so that you would know that the authority with which I teach is an authority that comes from God himself. This morning as I am explaining this to you, I'm very conscious of the fact that for many of us, the kind of objections that we lay before belief in Jesus are not primarily objections of our minds. They are objections of our heart. Jesus says in verse 17 and verse 18 that they're objecting to him and his authority not simply because they perceive he is speaking of their own authority. They understand the implication if he's speaking with the authority of God himself. If Jesus speaks with the authority of God himself, my friends, then you have the obligation to listen to him. It's not somebody who is simply another religious option. This is God's appointed Messiah who's speaking to you in the Gospel of John. This is not one option for you to believe or disregard. This is God's Savior. The only Savior. The one the whole Scripture has been pointing to. The one who demonstrated his power in the miracles he performed. The one who comes from God himself. He is being revealed here in the Scripture. And he's calling you to believe. He's calling you to overcome the objection. And to believe that this one, Jesus Christ, is in fact the Messiah. The one sent from God. What do I say to you this morning? What does Jesus say to you if you object to him as simply another religious option and not a very good one at that? It's simply this. This Jesus has come from God. He has the authority of God. He has demonstrated he's from God. And he's calling you to believe. But there's a second objection as well that is inherent in these verses, and this is the longer section of this passage in verses 25 through 36. And this raises a number of objections that are really captured under one central idea. If I can just point your attention to this section in verses 25 through 31, the crowds are objecting to Jesus. Because they say, we know where you come from. They return to that objection in verses 40 through 44. They say, we know where you come from, and it doesn't fit with what we believe ought to be true. There's also an objection in verses 32 through 39 about where Jesus is going. They object to him where he is coming from and where he is going. They object to his going... And that they believe, based on his words, that they cannot come where he is going, that he is going somewhere else. Even they believe outlandishly to the Jews. 
How can you be the Messiah, not to the Jews rather, but to the Greeks? How is it possible that you are the Messiah if you are going to the Greeks? If I can just summarize this objection for you, it is this. There's no reason for me to trust in Jesus because he doesn't meet my expectations. He's not who I think he ought to be. I could explain each of these objections more thoroughly, and I will to some degree, but I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. The objection that is raised in verses 25 through 31 is an objection that was based on a misunderstanding. The Jews believe that when the Messiah, when he appeared, no one would know where he came from. And that would be a sign that he was, in fact, the Messiah. You may wonder, why would they believe that to be true? Here's an idea. Have you ever heard of a performer who changes his or her name when they start to become famous? I used to be known as, now I am. Why would they do that? The reason why they do that is because they want you to understand that the person they weren't bef- that they were before is not the person they are now. You used to know where I came from, some small town in Indiana, but that's not who I really am now. Now I am this star. And the Jews believe something similar would happen with the Messiah. If you knew where he came from, he couldn't be all that the Messiah was anticipated to be. That would be far too limiting. He would have to all of a sudden appear almost out of the blue, that would demonstrate that he was in fact the Messiah. He would demonstrate his greatness. You notice Jesus dismisses that idea very quickly in verse 28. He says, you know where I come from. Eventually they do. They eventually come to think that he's from Galilee. He's really from Bethlehem as we know. But this objection that they raise that he could not be the Messiah because they know where he comes from, he says, you are mistaken. You believe I come from a town and a city, but look at what he says in verse 29. I have come from him and he has sent me. That Jesus was someone who was born of a woman and grew up in Bethlehem or was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, should not disqualify him from being the Messiah because Jesus says without hesitation, ultimately I come from the Father. He has sent me. He is the one who has brought me to earth. The other objection, the other side of that objection, the other bookend of that objection in verses 32 and following Where Jesus says, I'm going to leave and you cannot come with me. That where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews say, what does that mean? That's ridiculous. Of course we can go where you are. Jesus says, you will seek me and you will not find me. And they say, where is that going to be? That makes no sense. Again, this set of objections that really fall under, Jesus, you're not meeting the expectation that we have where you're from and where you're going. They don't, they don't make sense with what I believe ought to be true. Now here's the most interesting part of this passage, the way in which Jesus answers that final objection. And it comes in a section I've not said much about, but I want to be, make very clear to you, verses 39, uh, 37 through 39. 
where after all of these objections are raised, on the very last day of the feast, likely the seventh day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If you do, the scripture is said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. After all of these objections, even the desire to kill Jesus, you might wonder to yourself, what in the world is Jesus doing? Is he ignoring their objections? Is he answering them in any way? Let me give you an explanation. And if up to now it feels like we've wandered through this passage and you're wondering, what in the world are you trying to tell me? Listen carefully to this. As I said at the beginning, the Feast of Tabernacles recalled the time when the Israelites were in the desert, when they wandered around. They were looking forward to the time when God would bring them to the promised land. And the Jews celebrated that history by a fairly elaborate ritual at every Feast of Tabernacles. That ritual was this. Every morning of those seven days, water was taken from the pool of Siloam and carried by the high priest to the temple. And as he came to the temple, the temple choir would sing from the Psalms and every Israelite male would wave willow and myrtle branches in his right hand, a piece of fruit in his left hand, and they would sing together, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. The water was then poured out before the Lord. They did this for two reasons. Hear this carefully. First was retrospective, to tell them that God had given them water in the desert. He had provided for them. The second is this. It also pointed them forward to the coming of the Messiah when they believed the Spirit of God would be poured out over the whole earth. And here Jesus is in verses 37, 38, and 39 telling them at the Feast of Tabernacle on the last day the water has been poured out, Jesus stands and proclaims, if you are thirsty, if you lack water, come to me, I will satiate your thirst. Even more, I will make you into living springs of water through whom the Spirit will do great work. Now, here's a question I have for you as I end this morning. How does this answer the objections the Jews were raising? The question about where Jesus was from, the question about where Jesus was going, it seems totally disconnected. They object to him based on their expectation, and Jesus says, I'm fulfilling this feast. I am the one that the Feast of Tabernacle was anticipating. How does this answer the objection? The connection is here. The Jews looked at Jesus as one who was entirely separated from them. They looked at one at him as the one they would evaluate, the one that they should discern whether he was a Messiah. And along comes Jesus and he says, in verses 37, 38, and 39. I am not one to be evaluated. I am one to be believed. And if you will believe in me, I will not only provide for the thirst that you have, I will go even further and I will make you into one who is useful in the purposes of Christ's kingdom. 
Jesus transforms the question from their evaluation of him to his ability to use them in the kingdom he came to establish. Or let me put it this way. What Jesus has the power to do is to turn you from an objector objector to an instrument that the Spirit of Christ can use. In all your objections to Jesus, whatever they might be, Jesus has even greater purposes for you than you can imagine. As much as he may seem to be less than you anticipate, Jesus is the one who has come from the Father. He is a fulfillment of the Old Testament law. He has demonstrated his power that he is divinely appointed by the miracle of Scripture. And he has the ability, as he claims in these verses, to satiate the thirst that exists in your soul and use you to do great things in his kingdom. My friend, may that be true for you this morning. That as you've come, whether it's full, ready to receive Christ in holy claims to be, or whether your heart comes with objections, may the Spirit this morning overcome those by the words of Jesus himself. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have heard these words, we have also prayed that the Spirit would be with us, that he would guide us, that he would lead us into truth. We pray that would have happened here. In a passage that is quite difficult to understand and may lead to some confusion, Lord, we pray instead of confusion, clarity would reign. And Lord, turn us from those who object to those who believe, follow, and are useful to our King. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing, The Lord is My Salvation.
Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Go in his peace. Amen.